Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles, the 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. We'd love for you to have your Bibles in front of you. I want to be able to show you some things in the text that I think are significant in this journey we're about to begin in. For those of you returning back after being gone this summer, we missed you and we're glad you're back. Let me tell you where we've been so you can get a running start with us into this. We just completed a series called The Pursuit of Wisdom, where we have been looking through the Proverbs and the Psalms to find incidents and moments where God speaks about wisdom and how it is revealed to us and how we're to receive it and how we implement it in our lives. And what we learned was that it is wise to follow the instruction of the Lord and delight in it. And to delight in it is to experience it. In other words, to try it on and to demonstrate it in our lives. We learned it's wise to receive what God has done through the king, his son, and that he would send a king who would be an eternal king who would change everything. We learned that it's wise to know our place in God's created order and to serve that, to live in that space that God has placed us between the heavens and the earth. It's wise to know that even in God's silence, he is faithful, and if we pursue him deeper into his faithfulness, we'll discover him. It's wise to know him as our shepherd, and to draw close and allow him to provide the things he wants to provide. And we learned it's wise to know our sin and repent toward his kindness and his faithfulness. And today as we begin this new series called The Cruciformed Life, I want you to know it's wise to allow all that the cross symbolizes to shape who you are and where you go. So we are beginning this lengthy series that's going to take us into the letters that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. They're called First and Second Corinthians uh, in your scriptures. Paul wrote a series of letters to a church, and we're going to be looking in these two letters to see some of the themes that he challenges them about. Corinth was a troubled, challenged church. I won't say it's a mess, because I really don't know. I know that Paul had been exchanging letters with them because they had changed the focus of the gospel in the way they were living their lives out, and Paul called them on it. He called them back to the things that mattered and away from the things that didn't. And so when I say that it was a troubled, challenged church, let me rephrase that. It was a lot like Christ Church of Orinoco. There are challenges facing it because it's full of people like me. And the world is speaking to us and it's saying, hey, there's a shortcut here and there's a shortcut here. And if God would have known how cool we made the world, he would have changed some of the things he's written in scripture. And you and I know that's not true. And the reason we know it's not true is because we have to focus on the word of God and not the words of people. So Paul wrote a letter that was an exchange of letters. We don't know if we have 1st and 2nd Corinthians or we have 9th and 17th Corinthians. We really don't know. Because we know this is an interactive letter that Paul is responding to things that were offered to him in a letter that we don't have. And he's giving them information that he found pertinent. Corinth was a huge Greece town. I mean, it was in, the, it was in Greece and it was a, a metropolitan area where people from all parts of the world were flowing in and out with trade and business. They were bringing religions and philosophies and it was coming into the church. That's why I said, it's a lot like Christ Church of Orinoco here. We have people from different parts of the country, from parts of the world. We have different philosophies and we have people with, with different opinions and it's coming together and we're trying to find unity and we're working on this together. Paul had preached under some real tough circumstances. In fact, it was really troubling for him and he was trying to deal with all of it and he became discouraged and in Acts chapter 18, uh, God told Paul to stay there and preach. And so he did. And it was a tough go, but he planted a church and it began to grow. 
And then he began to hear some things taking place in the church that just weren't right. So Paul started to write them words of encouragement for the things that were right and words of exhortation for the things that weren't calling them away from that, encouraging them that it really mattered. And what Paul will say over and over and over in this series is that when we allow our lives to be formed by the cross and the truth of the cross, God is faithful and God's will can be accomplished. When we take shortcuts away from the work of the cross to do it our way or to do it a a way that the world seems to think is wiser, Paul is cautioning us each and every time. So what I'd like to do this morning as we launch into this series is just make two major points and show you how significant this is. The first is that the cross of Christ forms our community. If it doesn't, we're misshapen. But the cross of Christ forms this community. And Paul points out, if you, just, if you read the text, you'll see these four moments where Paul shows me that there are four things that the cross does within our lives if we open ourselves to it. The very first is that the cross humbles us. And I'm going to show you that by walking through this text and highlighting some key verses. We're not going to go verse by verse like we normally do, not because it's, it, it wouldn't work, but because what we're going to do is take the themes that Paul's addressing, that where the culture has come into the church, or where he's calling them to hold firm, and we're going to take those moments and we're going to walk through it as a church to see how we're to live our lives and how we're to live this out, formed by the cross. So in verse 2, Paul begins by saying, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Down to verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul uses the word continuously in his writing to churches. You take all of his letters, his epistles, these letters that he's writing to Christians like us in communities, calling us to greater things. He uses the word called regularly. And when Paul uses the word call, I want you to see that he's describing the work that God does, not the work that we do. It's so significant that Paul wants us to see that it was God who initiated this. This was God's desire. This was God's invitation. God did all the good work, and he's inviting us to return to him. So it is a call. Now, I apologize, I'm going to do it anyway, but you too often have to hear some of my opinions that don't really matter, but this one I think does. And that is this, that sometimes I hear in our culture an expression used. It's not always misused, but when it's misused, it's just horrifying to me. And that's when someone says, well, I've accepted Jesus Christ, as if they were doing the church a favor, as if they were patting Jesus on the head like, good work, you. And that always gets under my skin because I want you to understand, we don't accept Jesus. He accepts us. We don't do anything that earns this from him. Our response to Jesus' invitation, to the call of God on our life, should simply be, thank you, sir. I don't deserve this. This is bigger than anything I ever could have expected. And when we live in that, you'll understand what the calling is. It shows God's initiative. It shows God's work. God has set his sights on your soul. From the, from the moment of your creation to the moment of your rebellion, God has never quit pursuing each and every one of us, even those in the room or online this morning who are not believers yet and who are just kicking the tires on this Christianity thing, trying to figure it out what it's all about. I want you to know that God will pursue you to the end of your life. He is that faithful. 
He, it's not because he's enamored by you. He loves you as his creation, and he desires nothing more than to have that restored. Now, I'm gonna make a statement, and every time someone like me makes a statement, you could roll your eyes. I'm gonna say, there are two kinds of people in the world, and you're gonna go, no, there are five, and you're probably right, but I'm gonna talk about two. When it comes to the cross, there are two, there's a division that divides people into two groups. The first is, to those who are perishing, the cross seems absurd. And really, there's some legitimacy to the logic behind all of this and why we struggle with it. In verse 18, Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. The pursuit of wisdom series showed us that there is a right way to live life and God knows that right way. And if we trust it and we delight in it and we avail ourselves to what God is doing and trust his wisdom, there is life and there's a destination that's beautiful. If we step away from God's wisdom and we do it our way and we enter into what they call in the Proverbs folly or foolishness, we're gonna end up with destruction. We're gonna end up a mess. But we live in a world where millions will not even consider the cross. The very idea that God would become a man is the exit ramp that a lot of people take. That's when they're like, nah, I'm out, I can't. I, I can't even think about that, nevertheless believe that. Hundreds of millions of people think there is no God, but if there were, he would be disengaged. And hundreds of millions of others think it's preposterous that a man could be divine and killed by those who weren't. Like he wouldn't have just stopped it and found a better way. Maybe even today you think it's preposterous or maybe you think it's just mythology or these are stories that Christians tell themselves to create a worldview. 1 Corinthians 1.23, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. This is significant that Paul is writing to an audience in Greece, but he's saying that even the people that Jesus came from, this is an issue to them. In Jewish thought, anybody crucified or hung on a tree was a criminal. They were a proven criminal. So how in the world could the King Messiah be criminalized? He was cursed. He wasn't God's chosen. He was cursed. So many Jews cannot believe in Jesus as Messiah simply based on the way he died. Now, non-Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, however Paul phrases it particularly, we think it's just silly, this whole concept. Think about it. A man executed for political reasons in a small Middle Eastern country, and his death determines your eternal destination? Really? One guy's life determines how the rest of us work this out? Now, some of you are like, getting uncomfortable. It's okay. Because when you treat what Jesus does purely logical, you can walk away from it. When you understand what God's revealing, you can't. And so in the midst, we have this. Now, if we say, well, the Jews and the Gentiles are just silly. Oh, no, no, no. Let's talk about Americans, shall we? This will be a fun conversation. Take the successful, well-dressed American with a nice job, a nice house, nice car, who thrives on his independence. You know, the kind that walks around every day going, you're not telling me what I'm gonna, yeah, all of us. Take that person who's independent from everything and everyone, including God, and tell them their only hope in life is believing in this man named Jesus who died on the cross for them. He becomes your judge, your master, and your king. And that person will normally laugh or roll their eyes and dismiss all of it. You see, to those who are perishing, the concept of the cross and the crucifixion seems silly and absurd. To those who are being saved, the cross inspires. Look at the back half of verse 18. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what causes one group 
to think the cross is silly and another group to think the cross is inspirational. I'll tell you what it's not based on. Look at verses 26 to 29. I'll show you what it's not based on. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Translation, God didn't need us. He simply wanted us. God chose a merciful, loving act. For the strong, he made Jesus weak. For the wise, he made things look foolish. He took the simple things of life and changed the world in the simple things of love and sacrifice. You and I are a part of his church, called by God into this church only because of his sovereign mercy and not for anything we ever did. What sets you and I apart from the world, and I wanna be really clear about this, what sets you and I apart in the world from those that are in this building or in a church building or in a fellowship throughout the world today and those who aren't, it's not because we're smarter. It's not because we were born better or raised better or had better experiences. It's not anything we've achieved or accomplished. The only reason any of us are in the presence of God today is because of God. And those who aren't just haven't understood what they're missing by not being in the presence of the king. An 18th century preacher named Charles Spurgeon in London said these words, listen with me. I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. I say, amen. He must have chosen me for reasons unknown to me. For I never could find any reason in myself while he should have looked with me with such love. I don't know about you, but Spurgeon's speaking my story. I never would have figured this out without his help. I never would have chosen me myself, and yet he chose me just like he chose you. You see, we're not called because of our worth, because of our actions and our accomplishments. We're called because of his love, and he restores our worth. Recognize the initiative of God. This is what the cross humbles us in. It's not that we're worthless. It's that he is loving and good and providing. The cross humbles us not so that we're full of shame. It humbles us so we can understand him and who he is. That's why in verse 31, Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're gonna talk, talk about him because he did all the work and the cross works for us. Again, we're just gonna flip through some verses here pretty quickly. They're gonna be lumped together on the screen. I'm gonna tell you what verses they're in. But I want you to see what Paul is saying that the cross did for us. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. Verse three, grace and peace. Verse four, I give thanks to God because of the grace given you in Christ Jesus. Verse five, you have been enriched in him. Verse seven, and you are not lacking in any gift. Verse eight, you are waiting for the revealing of Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of Jesus. Think about this. You've been sanctified. You've been graced. You've been given peace. You've been sustained. You've been made guiltless all by the cross, all by the work of the cross. You see, the cross is not a token. The cross is not a poetic symbol. The cross is not an artifact. It's the truth of God's wisdom and love displayed. 
The cross is a reminder each and every day of a true thing in which God moved on this world, a very simple yet horrific thing that God made beautiful because of his love. It is the power, and it cannot be relegated to a historical event that took place a long time ago. And actually, you can't treat the cross like something that happened to somebody else a long time ago. It's crucial that it must be a part of our present power. If the cross is what happened to Jesus, but it has not happened for you, you've lost the power and the presence of it. So we have to focus ourselves on this. And you may say, yeah, but you know, it just, it kind of becomes a cliche because you don't take the time to understand how he is transforming us to the grace and mercy and enrichment and sustenance that comes from that cross. And the cross unifies us. And I got to be really careful. I'm putting myself on a timer because I can go off on this one. In verse 10, Paul begins to deal with one of the issues that he's made aware of in Corinth, which is epidemic even in the American church. And that is that there was a division over who they were following. And there was a discussion, were they following Paul because Paul started the church or was it Apollos who followed him and was doing preaching or was it Cephas or who was the preacher of the day, the preacher of the hour, the celeb? Who was the one you should be following? Who was the cool one? Who had the right answers? Who was right and who was wrong? And the truth of the matter is church, and until we get this right, the church is gonna remain uninfluential in community. It is who was on the cross not who's talking about the cross. It doesn't matter what the title of the church name is. If the cross is not the center of the gospel message and the king on the cross and the crown that is to follow, if those things are not in the center of the church, get out with all your soul. But if it is, stay and fight to keep it centered. Because Paul says to the church, it's to unify us. Because when we understand, it's not who's talking about the cross, it's who's on the cross. Paul would say, look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And it's kind of, you know, Paul goes third person there, which is cool. He's like, did I die for you? No. Then stop following me. Follow me as I what? As I follow Jesus. And we keep the crucifixion and the man of the cross who then, by the way, came off that cross by his own power. That's the man we follow. Every other man or woman who might lead or teach or guide us toward him, praise God for them and pray for them and and do what the wisdom of the scriptures say, but we follow the man of the cross, not just the people who proclaim it. See, focus on that one who died, and you'll find your life in that. So it humbles us, it's working for us, it unifies us, and the cross transforms us. I want you to notice some theology here. It's important. And I try to be really careful that we just don't throw a bunch of big heavy words out there that some German theologian came up with a lifetime ago and say, you need to remember this. And you need to remember the concepts of the truth. But Paul uses three theological words here that are so important to who we are. It's a foundation on which the cross demonstrates our life. In verse 30, he says, it is because of him, of God, that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. So let me back up and just tell you what we just heard. It's because of God that we have Jesus, and Jesus has revealed to us the wisdom of God so that through the work of Jesus on the cross, we have righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So let's talk about those three words for just a heartbeat. Our righteousness is our standing before God. Because of the cross, we can stand before God 
Our holiness is the conforming power to be changed into the life that God has given us from the life that we had destroyed. And our redemption is we have been saved. We have been bought with a price and given back to the Father that he, again, is restored in relationship with us. So what have we learned? That in Christ, we have been saved from sin's penalty, we've been saved from sin's power, and we've been saved from sin's presence. All of that in that moment. So when the world offers you a shortcut from the cross, the cross that Jesus bore and the cross that you and I bear, when the world offers us a shortcut, don't let the world offer you a generic salvation that will cost you your soul when the authentic salvation that is offered you came free. Why would you pay the price of your soul to take a shortcut when the real authentic salvation was offered to you through Jesus? Penalty, power, and presence of sin all done for you on the cross. So it humbles us, it works for us, it unifies us, it transforms us. That's why we are cruciformed. That's why we're formed by this one moment in history where God righted all that was wrong through Jesus Christ and restored everything that was shattered. The second point I wanna make just briefly this morning is that the cross of Christ displays the wisdom of God. And this is Paul's point over and over through this letter, these letters to this church in Corinth, is that there's a wisdom of God displayed in Jesus that we cannot shortcut we cannot allow the world to talk us out of. We, we can't try to find end around the cross. Now, the cross is the crossing point, no pun intended for all of us. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. You know, it's kind of insulting that he calls what I'm doing foolishness, but I'll let him because he's inspired. But this is what it says. He says, this foolishness of what was preached. Notice he says what was preached, not who preached or where it was preached or how it was preached. What was preached and what was preached? Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Verse 24, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Preaching the cross is crucial. If you can wait a couple of months, we're gonna get to 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul will say, I'm about to share with you the most important thing you'll ever know. And that is Jesus Christ crucified three days later, raised from the dead. So that is the structure on which the entire gospel message is built going forward. And there's so much more to it than that, but it starts in that beautiful moment where God's justice was met with God's love on the cross. What a statement. And Paul even uses words that he likes to use, the mystery of the gospel or the hiddenness of the gospel. In other words, that God has been winking and smiling and giving shadows and illustrations of what he's going to do and we couldn't see it. Go to the Old Testament and now that you know what Jesus did on the cross, you can go back into your Old Testament and go, oh my goodness, yes and oh yes and that too. You see, when you read like a letter to the Hebrews in your New Testament, you're gonna see the author of that letter to the Hebrew Christians is going back saying, did you notice this and this and this and how Jesus fulfilled all of those. God had said from the beginning that I am going to bring my redemption through my son. He will crush the serpent's head. And through all of this, we can see all that he'd done. You might see it in the Passover lamb and the blood on the doortop. You might see it in the prophecies of Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. You might see it in the, the, the vision that Ezekiel or Daniel has. You can see in the Old Testament. So if anybody ever tells you that you don't need to understand the Old Testament, just focus on the New, I don't believe you're ever gonna be able to taste the beauty of the New Testament unless you have a great appreciation for what God's been doing from day one. It's not like God started something and thought, now I gotta start over. No, he's been doing this from the beginning. 
and he's been building this beautiful thing. You see, what I want you to know is the story of scripture is God's predetermined affection for sinners. He has been pursuing us from the beginning over and over. But our world says that wisdom is found in things like power and position and pleasure. And I want you to know in my study of scripture, if I can uh, define it, I would say wisdom is found in death to our self-feeding pride. It is no longer looking for the shortcut that makes my life easier, but actually pursuing exactly what Jesus has asked me to do and the wisdom of God found in Jesus. When we humble ourselves, not because we're simply convinced it'll work, but we humble ourselves because we believe God is God and God is good and God is kind, wisdom will begin to be shown in us. If we simply are only doing what God asks because we think it'll work, we have really discounted his character, his, his love, his effort. And then in verse nine, However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. I've always misinterpreted this verse, and I'll be quick to the point. It just, it's beautiful now for me to sit and reflect on this verse to say, I have no idea what I'll see. I have no idea what's going on around me, and I probably will never totally understand it, but I know that my God is preparing things for me by faith if I'll trust him that there is great provision for all of us in a world that says there's nothing for you. If you follow Jesus, your life's gonna be empty and desperate. You're gonna have a horrible existence. And I'm like, no, you have no, you've not seen nor heard. And no man has any idea what God's got in store for us. So why would you live for short-term pleasure you cannot keep when you have a promise of long-term treasure you'll never lose? It's the trust we place. Verse 10 for there are things God has revealed to us by his spirit. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? Let's pause for a moment. Am I the only person in the room who gets irritated when someone tells me what I'm thinking and they're wrong? Am I the only person? Now, husbands and wives don't look at each other because that's ruined the previous services. <laughs> Have you ever had somebody tell you what you're feeling and why you're feeling it? And deep down inside, you're like, you couldn't be more wrong. Okay, I am the only one. Well, let me tell you how that feels. It feels awkward and embarrassing and absolutely humiliating to have someone tell me that they know me better than I know me. Now, sometimes someone will ask me, why did you do that? My answer is, I have no idea. I thought it'd be funny, and then it wasn't, right? But Paul says here, have you ever had a moment where someone's assumed they know you, and only you really know why you did what you did, even if it's a good reason or a bad reason? He continues, in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. For we have received, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. He's telling us that think back to that moment when your eyes were open for the very first time to the beauty of Jesus, not the facts of Jesus, because you may have heard the story from your time you were a kid, but do you remember that moment for the first time in your life, you knew you needed him. You knew you wanted him. And there was this burst of trust that formed in you. If you remember that moment, it may have been a powerful moment where God spoke to you in the quietness by yourself. Maybe you're like me and you were at church camp Thursday night. You were crying. You didn't know why you were crying. It was the 97th verse of just as I am. And finally you were like, yeah. Maybe it was in a, in a church service that just over and over and over the spirit began to work in your life. And you began to say, I am broken. I don't want to live like this. I need Jesus, and he wants me. 
I want you to know, however you came to that moment in time where your awareness of your need for Jesus, it was not your intellect. It was not your experiences. Paul said it was the Holy Spirit speaking to you, calling, and for some reason in that moment in time you heard. And it connected. And you found life. What caused that? Intellect? Being American. Having an education? No. It was God's Holy Spirit speaking to you the mind of God. Words like, I love you. I'll forgive you. I want to walk with you. Verse 13. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom. Paul's talking about all those preachers they were fighting over. But in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does, <clears throat> excuse me, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but consider them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And how do we have the mind of Christ? By focusing on the cross and the person on the cross. I want to be crystal clear with this. The person who is not following Jesus is not because they're ignorant. It's not because they don't have the mental faculties or they're so evil. The truth of the matter is they can intellectually understand what I'm saying today. It's just never connected with their soul. Because it's a fact of what happened to a man a long time ago in a certain place in the Mideast. Why should that affect how I live my life? But for many of us, we understand that what that man did in that moment actually affects my right now. It reshapes my soul. It unifies you and I together around a common cause of a person who gave up everything he shouldn't have had to give up because he was merciful and kind. You see, the entire message today is simply the basic elements of the gospel. That God's justice was met with God's love when God placed himself on the cross. And he died so that our sins could be forgiven. Now, I'd love for you to take the elements for the Lord's table that you brought in with you this morning, but let's see if I can get you guys to do this. Let's not unwrap them yet because the candy wrapper sound annoys all of us. All right, I just want you to hold them for a minute and think about it, and then we'll have the candy wrapper moment in a second. And then following my prayer, I want us to take it together after you have a moment to have a conversation with the Lord. On the night that Jesus established his table, his disciples were gathered around him. And after dismissing Judas to go do the work that Judas had decided to do, Jesus began to talk about the bread and the covenant and the blood and the banquet. He began to use biblical imagery. I have to imagine that the disciples around the table that day we're thinking, oh, he's talking about that moment back in Egypt a long, long time ago. He's talking about something that happened a long time ago to a different group of people. Not me, but a different group of people a long time ago. And that's really cool that that happened. It wasn't until later that they understood he wasn't talking about a past event. He was talking about a present reality. He was the Passover lamb. It was his Passover blood that frees us from our slavery to sin so that we can live by following him into the promised land. So when he said, this bread is my body and this cup is my blood, it was now, it was powerful, it was real, it was present. If the cross is a past event for you that happened to somebody else, just ask you to pray and listen for the Spirit's voice so that you can recognize 
It's now. And what we're about to do by eating and drinking this together is a reminder of the power available to us today. Not in the past, but a power available today and going into our future. And if you choose to eat and drink with us this morning, you are joining with millions throughout the world who know this one thing is true. The cross has formed our future. And following my prayer, as we're taking the elements together, you're going to hear a song sung and you're free to join us. The words will be up on the screen. It should be familiar to most of us. It's a song of praise, a song of respect, just a song that says, thank you, sir, for loving us so well. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for pursuing us. Even when we were brats, even when we were criminal, even when we were hate-filled. Jesus, thank you for coming and displaying the love of the Father on the cross and paying not just a symbolic price, but a real torturous price. Thank you for giving us yourself as our Passover lamb, not for a different group of people, but for every one of us. And thank you for your blood that cleanses. Holy Spirit, thank you for showing us revealing to us, penetrating our minds and our hearts and our souls with not only the truth that Jesus died on the cross, but the truth that he did it for us and we needed him to. Father, I pray in this room before we take these elements, if there's anyone who's never taken a knee before Jesus and received the gift of the cross, that they would make a choice today to do so and come speak to us in the foyer at the prayer center and simply say, I wanna, I wanna accept what he's offered me. I, I wanna receive from him life. Father, we know that's what you want to. So today we eat and drink in honor of Jesus, the man on the cross, that we might follow him off of our cross through the tomb into the new kingdom you've prepared for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.